want you to know that a lot of prayer and consideration has gone into this week's message, more so than usual. Not that every week you don't have a lot of prayer and consideration and preparation and research, but this week especially more so. We're going to continue our study through the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8 through verse 15. I don't know if any of you guys have been reading along 1 Timothy with us. Now, I hope that you have been, and if so, you'll know why a lot of prayer and consideration and research has gone into this morning's message, because we're talking, and Timothy particularly, uh, is being addressed uh, about worship in the church among the women of the church. So a a couple of things real quick that I want to hit on before we dive into this passage together. First of all, I don't want you to lose the irony that I planned out a study in 1 Timothy. I have all of my messages planned out, the passages and the titles, all throughout the rest of the book, and it set a start date a few weeks ago. And this particular sermon, you'll notice we took a break last week to talk about Mother's Day. Had we not taken a break, I would have got to preach this sermon on Mother's Day. Please don't miss the irony in that, because there was a lot of wisdom of people that said, you know, maybe Mother's Day isn't the right place to bring this message out. I would argue that maybe it was, but maybe you wouldn't think so. Um, Secondly, I want you to to understand this too. We're going to come to a passage of Scripture this morning that has a lot of questions, not just from you all, but for all of church history. One verse in particular that people have struggled with and still do to understand the meaning of. And so I want to come before you this morning not to tell you I have all of the answers, although we're going to look that God's Word is clear on some things, but to acknowledge there's some strange ambiguity, especially in one, per, one verse in particular, that I'm going to do my best to explain what I think Paul is saying, uh, but we understand there are some things in Scripture that are, that are just difficult to process. We do know this. We know that every single word of this is God's word and meant for our lives. We just sang a song a few minutes ago, Build My Life. And in the the bridge of that song, we said, I will build my life upon your rock. It is my firm foundation. And by that, I take to mean, and I believe when I sing those verses, that your word, God, your message, God, is what I will follow regardless of how I feel about things. And so this morning, we're going to read through 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start just by reading, as we have been doing, chunks of verses at a time. And we're going to get through the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's start just by looking at verse 8. We did this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about a chapter on prayer. In verse 8, we're going to read again because it's a nice bridge to know that Timothy is, or Paul is not writing to Timothy out of a vacuum. Verse 8, he says, I desire then... That in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So Paul begins with a bridge. Remember in the first half of 1 Timothy 2, he said we need to pray for everyone in every circumstance, whether they're in a high position or a low. Excuse me. We need to be praying and people of prayer. And now he gives some instructions specifically to men. Sometimes in the Bible, you'll read, I want men to do this, and it's talking about humanity. This particular word for men literally means the men of the church. Okay, This is not humanity. This is men. I want men in every place to pray in public worship, in private worship, in the public sphere, in the home, in the culture, every place. Men this morning... You are called on to be people of prayer. 
He tells the men then to lift up holy hands. Jared said a moment ago, he won't tell you how to worship, but God's word will tell you how to worship, okay? So uh, it says, when you pray, lift up holy hands. Now, I want you to know that he was physically talking about the men lifting up hands because that was a traditional, culturally appropriate way in that moment, in that time, when Jewish men prayed, they would lift their hands up as a sign and a symbol to say, God, I have repented and my hands are clean. I come before you with a clean heart. That's why he says lift up holy hands. Don't lift your hands up to God and say, um, God, I refuse to do what you tell me to do, but I like this song and I'm going to sing it. Right? Lifting up holy hands says my hands were messy and dirty, but the blood of Jesus Christ has washed them and now I can come before you. It doesn't mean that here today we are required when we pray to lift our hands up, although it's perfectly appropriate to do. What it means is we're to come with a symbolism, men, to come before God with a repentant heart. Come before God and say, Lord, there's nothing in my life that's keeping me from a right relationship with you. I'm confessing my sin and I'm coming to speak to you with a clear conscience. I lift up my holy hands. And then he gives some instructions And I remind you, these are to the men of the church. Do so without anger or quarreling. I think the reason why he puts this in verse 8 is because, men, we have more of a tendency to be hotheads than women. You can give me an amen because you know it's true. We have a tendency, I expected a man to amen that, but that's okay. We have a tendency to, to let anger and quarreling fester. And, and if you notice, I, I just saw from the pictures up there, some of the boys' younger pictures were a little more aggressive than the girls' younger pictures. If you watch the graduation videos, the girls are in their pretty dresses. They're in front of a mirror, and they're cute looking at themselves. Maybe they're, they're all dolled up for some sort of performance, and the guys are sitting on top of each other and squishing each other, right? This is, this is the nature of boys and the nature of girls now that's not always true sometimes uh, there are girls who are more rough and tumble sometimes there are boys who are more theatrical or whatever it may be but but there's a reason why paul says men i want you to lift up holy hands and let me tell you what's going to keep you from lifting up holy hands it's going to be the anger and the quarreling and we ought to be christians who can examine our hearts and say where i failed I, i need to confess And there's a bridge then from be people of prayer to instructions for men and women. And men begins with you. Live your lives in such a way that you model repentance and Christian behavior before God. Paul then turns his attention in the rest of the chapter to instructions for women. And so let's read specifically in verses 9 and 10 knowing that some of you are going to read this for the first time and it just gets more and more shocking to those who haven't read it and we're going to talk about what paul is speaking here verse 9 he says likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works Paul says, likewise, just like, there's the anger and quarreling right there. (laughs) Paul says, just like men should pray everywhere with this attitude, women likewise, you should pray everywhere. In every sphere, in public worship and private worship, you should be people of prayer. 
Likewise, just like the men are to lift up their holy hands, you are to lift up your holy hands. But whereas the men, he said, take care of your anger and quarreling, he has further instructions for the women. If these two verses sound a little shocking to you, that Paul would have the audacity to talk about the dress and attire of women, just wait till you read the next few verses. So before we delve into what are admittedly some of the most confusing verses in the Bible, it's important to lay a brief foundation. First is kind of a cultural background that is important to recognize. In the first century, women were not considered equal with men. You have to understand this. We're going to talk about biblically what the Bible says about men and women, but culturally speaking, women did not have an inheritance. The men had the inheritance. Women did not have the standing in society. Their husbands had the standing in society. Sure, last week we talked about some entrepreneurial women. We, we talked about how God has designed them. But in the culture, there was a strict line between men and women. This was certainly not God's design. Let's be very clear about that. God never intended for there to be inequality between men and women. God created male and female as equally in his image. As a matter of fact, in Christ, we're reminded that there is neither male nor female in Galatians chapter 3. There's no distinction in equality. That God has created men and women as equals before him. In Ephesus in particular, but really in the entire first century, women were rarely used in worship unless they were used as objects of sex and sexual worship. This is how women in worship typically were used because they were viewed as lesser citizens. In, in Ephesus in particular, where this is written toward, there's a temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. Or Artemis. And, and this temple you may uh, have heard of by another name, the temple to the Roman god of Diana. It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It's right here, fully functioning in the middle of this town where the church is trying to be built. Artemis was a goddess who was responsible for both blessing and cursing women. And so there was a, a large population of women who were involved in this, this twisted form of worship to a false god. So a little cultural background about how women were standing and being used by the culture. Particularly in this book, in 1 Timothy, this letter that Paul is writing to his disciple Timothy... Um, so far, we've addressed some false teachers in the church. If you remember, there were some, some people being divisive and trying to tear the church apart. They were teaching things that they knew nothing about. Um, they, they were babbling and focusing on the wrong priorities. And thus far, as far as we know, these divisive individuals were all men. We assume they're all men, and I think it's the right assumption. But later in this letter, we're going to learn of some divisive women as well particularly some of the young widows whose husbands have passed away, who use that as an opportunity to take advantage of the church. Care for me and love me. Do everything for me and I can be lazy and slothful. Some of these women we can assume were involved in some of this pagan worship outside of the church and we're bringing some of these same values into the church in Ephesus. So it's important to realize some very ungodly women are present within the church. 
biblical context as a whole, we look at what does the Bible say about men and women. Well, first, we already hit on this. God created men and women as equal. Both Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. Can I tell you flatly this morning, regardless of what preconceived notions you've came in about what the Bible says about women, the Bible is one of the most progressive books in all of ancient history that lifts up and promotes the value and worth of women. We're going to talk about that. It's because God has created men and women as equal. God created Adam and Eve equal before him, and this is important, but with very different and distinct roles. So in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see particularly within the family, but even bleeding out to, to worship and leadership in the church throughout the rest of the Bible, there are very different and distinct roles. That does not mean that some roles are more important or better than other roles. One of the roles that women function in that men never can, and Paul actually will address in a controversial verse later on in this passage, is that women can give birth to children. Men, it does not matter how much you desire to, because I know you all want to, you will never, ever have any possibility of giving birth to a child. God did not create you for that role and for that purpose. Husbands, you can be as motherly as you want, but you can never be a mother. God has created women with unique gifts that men don't have. And as we look at it the other way, the same can be said for men. God has created you, men, with specific roles and gifts that you are called to fulfill. God has created men and women equal, but with very different functions, and that was intentionally. With that said, we read all throughout the Bible, God uses women in amazing, powerful ways. We talked about briefly that the Bible is one of the most progressive, pro-women books of ancient literature. That's because the Bible has the audacity, the Bible has the, the courage to uplift women in a time where women would have been silenced. We see prominent women all throughout the Bible. And if you put it side by side with other first century or older texts, you will find no mention of women in any positive light. Instead, we see God using women like Eve, who is the mother of all living and is praised as the mother of all living. We see him using Sarah and her boldness. We see him using Rahab in her obedience. We see her, him using Deborah in her leadership among the judges. We see him using Esther as a queen who saves all of Israel. Don't miss this. The woman, the person who is responsible for God using to maintain the line of Israel and eventually the line of Jesus Christ himself was a woman. They would have been murdered and killed if it was not for Esther. We see God using women like Ruth and Naomi. In the New Testament, we see him using a woman named Mary, who we know far more about than her husband Joseph. We see him using two women even in Timothy's life, his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice, investing and growing and leading. The Bible speaks often of women and their specific faithfulness. So why is it then, knowing the Bible speaks so well, counterculturally well of women, why is it that our culture constantly 
tries to claim the Bible devalues them? It's a great question, and we're going to look at this question as we study today. It really boils down to a misunderstanding of God's created order and desire for our lives. It really boils down to a salvation issue. And we'll talk about that as we we unwrap some of these verses. Getting back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul is addressing the way women dress. Can I tell you, there is maybe nothing more controversial when you work in youth ministry than trying to address the attire of teenage girls. I was a youth pastor for a long time, and I always put that off on my wife. I think that was wise, and I still, to this day, will not address immodesty or immodesty in anybody in the church. That is not my place as a man, and quite honestly, I'm scared. (laughs) You know what I found out? I wasn't so scared or nervous of how, how a teenage girl would react. I was more scared of mama because mama bought those clothes for her. And how dare you say? How dare you address? I was more afraid of the family, quite honestly, and the, the repercussions that's going to come. If there's one thing I learned is, is you are not supposed to touch the dress of a woman. You leave that alone and you step back. But Paul doesn't know these rules. Paul apparently was never a 21st century youth pastor, and he has not learned that this is a subject that is taboo, and he addresses it head on. He says, women, likewise, when you pray and when you come for worship, adorn yourselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. Why does Paul address this? Because remember, it's countercultural to the way every other woman would have dressed in worship. If they were used for sexual purposes, they would have dressed extremely immodestly. As they entered into worship, the goddess Artemis or other pagan gods, they would have dressed in a way that drew attention away from worship and toward themselves. So Paul says, dress respectably, modest, and self-controlled. Dress in ways that do not draw attention to a woman's natural sexual appeal. This is what Paul is saying. He's not telling you what to wear and what not to wear. He's saying, ladies, you see how the culture worships? And do you see how they misuse? Don't be that in the church. Don't be that in the culture. Be different. He goes on to say, don't have braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. I want to tell you, Paul has no desire to tell women whether they can wear pearls or not whether they can braid their hair or not. I'm looking around. I don't necessarily see anybody with braided hair. Don't be convicted if you do. It's okay to come to church with braided hair. Paul is specifically warning against clothing or adorning yourselves in ways that draw attention away from worship and toward the woman herself. So let let me give you a couple of examples that might help you with this, okay? If a woman came to church dressed like Julia Roberts from Pretty Woman, okay? That would draw immediate attention away from any worship and towards her, right? So, so if you have that outfit at home, I don't want to know you have that outfit at home. Please don't wear it to worship, right? That, that may be the big obvious one, but how about this? If an individual would come to church with extremely obnoxiously styled hair with the intention to draw attention away from everything else and towards themselves. Maybe it's the big hat, maybe it's the gaudy jewelry, and your intention when you walk in is specifically to say, look at me. 
Now, I want you to know, I do not want you to be at home trying to think, is this going to draw attention away? This is a heart issue, right? This is not a, I need to go through and mark this is okay. This is, instead, you look and say, God, I want to go to church, and I want to give you the glory and not have it on me this morning. I, I want to also acknowledge this. This likewise is linking the men's instruction and the women's instruction. Men, you have the same instructions. If you were to walk into church in a way that would draw attention away from worship and towards yourself, it is sin. So for instance, if you come wearing the most gaudy, awful-looking suit that you could wear to a church service, (laughs) not appropriate for worship, Jordan. Of course we tease. He did wear it on a Sunday morning, and he was upstairs, and he was, it was... However, here's what I'll say. Men, women, whoever you are, if you come to church with any other motivation than I want all the attention to be on God, you're coming with the wrong motives and a sinful heart. Men, there are ways that you draw attention away from God, often with your anger, often with our obnoxiousness, often with our quarreling. And women, there are ways that we often fall into temptation. Paul warns, please, Please, please put the focus on God. He says, then, dress instead. He doesn't give the specifics, wear this color, wear this style. He says, dress in what is proper for women who profess godliness. Dress with good works. Women who profess godliness. This phrase means it's targeted to you Christian women. If you identify with Christ, this is for you. I will go ahead and tell you right now, this verse is not targeted towards people who don't profess Christ. Do we want modesty in our culture? Absolutely. Would we want modesty in our sanctuary? Absolutely. Those who do not know Christ, though, they don't know any better. But those of you who profess Christ, you draw your attention to the Savior. He says, clothe yourself with good works. That's what people ought to notice about you. Not, did you see the dress? Or did you see the hair? Or did you see the jack-o'-lantern suit? Instead, it's did you see how they served and how they worshipped? I tell you, most of you don't remember when Jordan came in with that suit. You know why? Because what you do remember is that he's upstairs serving. That's the model of godliness. Many of you don't remember what, what whoever woman is dressed in last week, but you remembered that they shook your hand or they, they gave you a hug and they welcomed you and they loved you. You remember how they they taught your children in Sunday school. You remember how they they contributed to your small group class. You remembered how they worked hard at Bible school decorations. That is what godly women draw attention to, what God is doing, not what they look like and appear. Women are called to focus their attention on serving God. Men, likewise, our attention needs to be when we enter into worship, Our focus is on our service toward God. Both men and women must take the responsibility to lift up holy hands and say, it's not about me, it's about you. Now, if you were shocked that Paul addressed the attire of women, how dare he step on my toes that way, just wait for the next couple of verses. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 
No amens on that one, huh? Something really important for us to understand is that when we read Scripture, it is God's Word. Paul clearly is not teaching that women are inferior to men. The Bible has thrown that out. There is equality. But this verse does support the biblical truth that men and women are different with different roles and different responsibilities. These verses have nothing to do with a woman's role in the workplace or in her political office. They're referring to spiritual leadership specifically within the church. Remember, this is how we lift up our holy hands. This is how we come before God in worship. The first phrase he says in these verses is, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Submission has become a dirty word for many women, even Christian women. It's one that, that we recoil as soon as we hear. How dare the pastor use that? How dare the Bible speak that? And there are often concepts in the Bible that we struggle with. We don't like and that we turn away from. But let us not use our fallen preconceived notions as an excuse to ignore what the Bible is clearly trying to teach us. Whatever your preconceived notions is, can we come to grips with the fact this morning that Scripture uses the word submission? Can we just say this isn't, this isn't a church or a pastor? This is God himself, writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who gives us these instructions. Really, all through the Bible, God has created a universe that exists in a system of submission. All the way from the beginning, we see that all of creation, the animals, submit to humanity. We are to have dominion over all the earth. There's a submission principle of creation submitting to humanity. Then we see humanity is called to submit to governing authorities. God has put governing authorities so that they can guide and direct us. Sometimes they're godly, sometimes they're ungodly, but when they don't call us to compromise the word of God, you are called to submit to those governing authorities. We read that children are called to submit to their parents and honor their father and their mother. We see that wives are called to submit to husbands, and we see ultimately that everything is called to submit to Jesus Christ. Creation has been formulated in such a way that God is teaching us how to submit ourselves to Christ. Every aspect of our lives, there's someone we're called in submission to, male or female. There is some way that God has created and wired us to be submissive. Paul deals with the why in the next few verses, but for now, know that God's creative purpose involves all of creation submitting in their appropriate roles and ways. Paul continues and he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. This is one that has been used and abused in both directions. There are some people who would take this verse and in their Bible cross out that phrase. I want you to know at First Baptist Church, we have women who are teaching Sunday school classes on a weekly basis, children, college age, and even our adults. We have women who are involved in leading Bible studies, particularly with, with other women and, and women's studies. We have women who are involved in leading in worship. We have women who are involved in a lot of different areas. What is Paul then talking about? And is First Baptist disobeying this command, I do not permit a woman to teach? I think it's important to recognize that you cannot separate the role from the function. So what is Paul trying to say when he says, do not teach? Does he mean, do not ever speak a word of instruction in the church? I think that can't be. 
Because other places, Paul has specifically said, here is prophetesses who have proclaimed the word of God to my people. There are other places where women we have read have been given outsized roles that the culture would not allow. So what does Paul mean when he says, I don't permit a woman to teach? I think specifically it is the public church-wide proclamation. The pastor role is reserved for men. Now, if that is kind of shocking to you, know that next week you probably won't like what Paul is writing to Timothy either because he outlines that specifically next week. There are certain roles in the church, and particularly he outlines it very clearly, the roles of elders and overseers and the roles of deacon are reserved for leadership to teach submission of those leaders to Christ and of women to godly male leadership. And so I have no problem with any woman praying publicly. I think likewise, women are to lift their hands up in prayer. I have no problem that under the authority of the church, how God has instituted it, as God has called male leadership in the church in those roles, for women to submit themselves to that authority. And in that right, teach our children and to teach our college class. And when need be, under the authority that God has instituted to teach even an adult Sunday school class. Paul says, I don't give them permission to exercise authority over a man. And this really is more of the same, isn't it? Paul is clarifying what he means by teaching, and that is God has structured the church the way he structured the family. That men should step up with their holy hands and put away their arguing and their quarreling and lead so that women then can come alongside and be the gifts that God has given to all of us. He gets pretty bold when he says, rather she is to remain quiet. This is the one that ruffles a lot of feathers the most. What does Paul mean when he says remain quiet? Certainly he does not mean she cannot ever voice anything within the church. Quite the opposite. A number of times Paul has said, let me contend this woman. Let me give you this woman who has been a leader let me give you this family where the wife has opened up their home. Let me, let me share with you the, the woman who invested in Timothy, his mother and his grandmother. Let me tell you the women who have spoken up. Let me read about Esther, who went before a king and opened her mouth and said, will you save the people of Israel? Let me tell you about all of the Bible that, that shows women vocally using their gifts God has given them. No, instead, what Paul is trying to emphasize is that there is a tension between men and women that started back in the book of Genesis. A tension where men wanted to lead less and women wanted to lead more. And when the fall took place, there has been an ever-growing fight to subvert the submissive creation of God's universe. I believe what he's saying is a woman is to remain quiet because men, you've got to stand up and speak. It's not silencing any woman, nor should it. It should be the men listening to the church and lead and guide based on what God is calling the church to do. It only gets more controversial. So before we jump into that, I, I think what's important to learn from this particular group of verses is that we are called to embrace God's design for our life. 
We are to accept that God has given us specific roles and specific tasks. And we're to beg and plead with God to show us what those roles are and how God wants us to use them for his kingdom and his glory. If those verses tell us the what, the next verses give us the rationale or the why, and even more shocking language comes out in verses 13 and 14. He says, here's why this principle is important. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Holy smokes, Paul, what are you talking about? Somebody, I feel like, needs to get a hold of Paul's Twitter handle and tell him to calm down a little bit, right? Paul says, here's why you do that. Well, because Adam, he was created first. You know why Paul is appealing to the creation account? Because he wants to remind us that this submission idea is part of God's original design. There was not... There was not a a moment in God's creation that God said, I want to inverse this. From the very beginning, God created specific roles. That's why he creates Adam first, and he says, you go name the animals, Adam. Go do it. He gives Adam specific responsibilities before Eve is ever created. And then Eve is created specifically as a helpmate to come alongside and to build up the kingdom of God with Adam. So he appeals to creation so that we know that these responsibilities are not a cause of sin. But then he goes even further and he brings sin into it. When he says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. If your feathers aren't ruffled, then then you're really not paying attention because Paul is saying some pretty bold statements here. Adam was not deceived, It almost sounds as if God is writing to us saying, put all the blame on Eve's shoulders. It wasn't Adam's fault. He wasn't deceived. It was the woman. Can I tell you that word deceived you're reading wrong? (laughs) You know why? Because what this implies is that the woman was deceived and Adam sinned with open eyes. He knew what he was doing. Adam wasn't deceived. Eve said, here, take a bite. And he knew full well and he ate. What Paul is saying is there's a a role that needs to take place where the the family should be making these decisions together and Eve was not following that. She did something on her own and fell into deception. Where was Adam with his open eyes to say, stop? This is really a convicting verse for men more than for women. Adam's men, where are you to lead? Where are you to stand up and say, I will lift my holy hands up? I will be the protector that God's called me to be. These roles are set so that we can be the protector God created us to be. Where are you? And Paul says, then Eve became the transgressor. Really, Adam and Eve very quickly became sinful people and brought sin into the world. But at that instant of Eve's deception and sin, the entire creation order was upset. Eve is focused on in this passage because Paul is going to appeal to her specific punishment. Eve's punishment was, one, a desire to rule over her husband. Her desire will be to rule over him. And two, that she will now have pains in childbirth. Can I tell you, the tension is created right there. Because husbands, as a result of the fall, men, as a result of the fall, we have stepped back and said, okay, God, 
I'm not going to fulfill what you've created me to do. And women, you've stepped forward and said, I'm going to do more than what you've called me to do. This curse and this part of the fall has completely upset all of creation. And then Paul says, don't forget that sin entered the world and that brought child uh, pain in childbirth. Next is one of the most difficult verses in all the Bible to understand is the appeals to this pain. These verses just get harder and harder to read and understand, but I think Paul has built something here in verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they, women, will continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Got to be honest, every time I would read this verse as a young Christian and really up until you really study it, it felt like Paul was getting a make me a sandwich moment here. Right? This, was, this was not something I really enjoyed reading, and it was hard. It felt like Paul was putting Eve and women in the church in their place. You go do your childbirth thing. That is not what Paul is building to here. For thousands of years, people have read this verse and struggled with it because it's, it's contrary to what a lot of the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, having nothing to do with any works or action that we do. So what is Paul saying when he says you'll be saved through childbearing? It cannot mean you are eternally saved because of your ability to have children. There are many, many theories, but let me share what I think is the most probable understanding of what Paul is saying here, knowing full well that this is the verse that for 2,000 years the church has not got a firm answer on. I think it makes most sense if you look at that word through and understand it not to mean by way of, saved by way of childbearing, but instead mean as through a danger. 1 Corinthians 3.15 uses the exact phrase in this way. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's not saved by the fire. He's saved in the midst of the fire. And with that understanding in mind, reread this verse. Yet Eve and women will be saved even though they go through the curse that was placed on them in Genesis chapter 3. Even though, like all of humanity, the curse of sin is on them. God has provided salvation. This is a progressive, uplifting verse in that light. Every other first century religion would say, women, you don't matter. And God is saying, I've got a plan to save all of mankind, including the curse that is on every woman. I think if we think about the pains associated with childbirth, some of them men will never relate to. Most of them men will never relate to. But women, through centuries and centuries of understanding this curse, understand the physical pain. Think back to the time that this was written with no anesthesia, no epidurals, no modern medicine. It was not only physically painful, it, there was death associated with childbearing. Women died because of a lack of medical understanding. There's pain when it comes not just to having children, but there's pain that comes with raising children. It doesn't end when you give birth, but your children are sources of joy and sources of sorrow because you want so badly what's best for them, and, and you see them struggle, and you struggle. 
You think of the pain associated with childbearing, the number of women who, who have given their lives for the sake of their children, the number of women who painfully long for a child but will never have one. The pains associated with childbirth extend so much further than this idea of it hurts to give birth. Really, these pains are a reminder of the curse that sin has left on all of humanity. Childbirth carries a, a huge weight of burden ever since the fall. It is a reminder over and over again that we live in a fallen and broken world. But the Bible speaks of women as co-heirs in Christ. A reminder that even though the curse is on us and the rest of the culture says inequality, the Bible says you are sons of God. 1 Peter 3, 7 tells us that women are included in being sons of God. You may wonder, why, why don't we update that to say sons and daughters of God? There's a reason why it says that we're sons of God, and it's not because the Bible is sexist. It's because the Bible is not. Women, you are included in the inheritance that the rest of culture would say you're not worthy of. You're included in the salvation that the rest of the world would downplay. God has said you are created in my image and are equal with different gifts that God has worked in you in such a beautiful way. Women, you have been a blessing beyond what the culture would tell you. I want to give just a summary as we get ready to, to wrap up of, of how John Piper explains this verse. He writes, Even though many women today and in history may feel the ongoing effects of the curse and the pains of childbirth and the lifelong wounds that it leaves, I urge all of our Christian sisters not to despair. God's word to you is hope, not curse. God has a plan for you in salvation, not destruction. Yes, the man must work out his salvation through the cursed futilities and the miseries of labor in Genesis chapter 3, but millions of women must find her salvation through the pains and the curse and the miseries of childbearing. The path of salvation is the same for her as it is for all the saints, continuing in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Jesus Christ is the Savior who became the curse for us. Galatians chapter 3. The sting of the curse has been removed, and it cannot damn us anymore. Faith in Him is the link to the Savior. Love, holiness, and self-control are the authenticating fruits of faith. At the last day, every vestige, every part of the curse will be undone and every wound will be healed. That is part of what it means to be saved through faith in Christ. Our reminder is that God will redeem you from the curse of sin. God's desire is to save you from your own sinful life. So as we think about women in worship, we can focus so much on what the culture tries to tell us the Bible is saying. Or we can acknowledge that God created each of us specific, with specific roles and specific functions, men and women alike. 
In our fallenness, we rebel against Him, but God's desire is to redeem you. We're going to have a time of prayer, and I, I want to ask you, do you have a story of redemption? Do you know that Jesus Christ has paid for your sins? Male or female, church person or not church person, do you know clearly that God's will for your life is to bring you in line with how he created you to be, to give you all of eternity removed from the curse of sin? As we pray, would you ask yourself, God, do I know you this morning? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we're thankful for your created order. Lord, I thank you for the gifts you've given men in the church, and I pray that we would stand up faithfully to serve you in those roles. Lord, I thank you for the gifts you've given women in the church, and I pray that they would faithfully stand up and serve you in those roles. Father, harsh language as we read, only because the culture has told us to rebel against the created order. Father, we come before you understanding fully that your desire is for us to submit in the appropriate way so that we can submit our lives to you. Father, you're teaching us. You're growing us through your word. Father, I'm so thankful that as we stand before you, the curse of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ has been lifted. And if we would put our faith and trust in you, we could live lives without that curse on us. Fathers, we worship you this morning. Convict our hearts to serve you in the way you've called us to serve. Let us yield our hearts to you. Let us cling to the blood of Jesus Christ and beg for mercy and forgiveness. And thank you, Lord, that you're faithful to lift the curse from each of us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.